Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Now here is your host, Adam Proctor. Grab your mint juleps. Grab your bottles of bourbon. Because joining me today on the Society is Matt Carp. Matt is the author of a recent book called This Vast Southern Empire, Slaveholders at the Helm of American Foreign Policy. Among other things, he is a professor at Princeton University and a member of the editorial board at Jacobin Magazine. This man has forgotten more about American history than most of us will probably ever know. Stay tuned. You guys are really going to love the interview that I have with Matt Carp. We get into the nitty-gritty of uh, the Civil War history, but we don't just stop there. If you all are sort of bogged down in the uh, historical details, if you don't have the background in history to keep up, have no fear. Uh, towards the end of the interview, Matt starts spitting fire about our contemporary conjuncture and uh, our strategic orientation that we need going into the future. So don't get lost in the historical details. Uh, we're going to talk about some really important things near the end. But a couple of things before we get to that interview. Uh, as I mentioned last week, I am now on Patreon. I have bit the bullet, joined the crowd. I know there are a lot of podcasts and people asking you for money right now. But if you do have some extra scratch and you enjoy the show, please consider supporting us on patreon.com backslash deadpundits. Or you can Google us, Dead Pundits Society Patreon. And I'm sure you'll find the page. It shouldn't be too difficult there. So we now have $3 per month, $5 per month, and $7 per month levels. You can talk to us on the message board if you are a society member. You can um, do things like give us feedback, request guests, show topics, that kind of thing. You can tell us how much you love the show. Uh, you can tell me how much of an asshole I am. <laughs> and I'll have to listen, you know, because that's that's the way capitalism works, right? So yeah, let's get that out of the way. So patreon.com backslash dead pundits. Donate to the show if you can. I really appreciate it. On to the final topic. Uh, there's a disturbing trend that I've noticed since I started this show five weeks ago that I wanted to share with you all. Uh, in part, it's due to... I, you know, I want to explain the poor gender balance that we've had in terms of guests so far. Uh, we're five for five on men guests uh, so far and it's not for a lack of trying uh, the disturbing trend which I'm speaking to is the fact that you know this this show uh, prides itself on having critical perspectives on the left you know we don't just rah rah we rule you know Trump drools uh, you know that kind of thing you know oh the world is so all terrible am I right and we're great and the world sucks you know like I'm being crude here but right like we know those podcasts and they exist and i listen to them and i enjoy them but th this isn't that podcast right like i started this to take critical perspectives um on critical stances on intra-left debates and i want to bring on guests that also have critical stances 
But this means that the women uh, in particular that I have invited to come on the show have had to, to decline that invitation. And that's because in writing the article or giving the talk that they gave that prompted my invitation, they received such a backlash from the left to their message that they thought it best just to lay low until the, you know, until the, the shitstorm died down. You know, and I remember the days when we used to be afraid of being doxxed on the Glenn Beck show or whatever. You know, I remember the days when political meetings that we would have would be infiltrated by these little shitbags uh, from Breitbart, you know, Breitbart.com, who would come in and they would secretly videotape, you know, your political meeting and then they would air it on Fox News or whatever, along with your home phone number and address. You know, but nowadays, you know, leftists have to be afraid of the harassment and intimidation from fellow leftists. And this is just really disturbing. You know, and the only sin that, you know, one can speak of is, is, is that they depart too far from the orthodoxy, right? And, and, the, and these women are called anti-left, anti-women, you know, self-hating women, uh, anti-black, anti-queer, whatever the case may be, they're slandered. Uh, simply for having a slightly different analysis uh, than 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 you know what's dominant in some spheres of the left, and you know that we call this the narcissism of small differences. Uh, we can call them this just uh, you know clickish, toxic behavior, whatever you call it. It has to stop. And I you know I have a voice here. I have a sense of relative privilege as the male host of the show. And although I can't get into the details about the specific cases of the women who have declined the invitations that I've extended, I did want to raise uh, this sort of general call because I've noticed that it's a trend. And I know it's only anecdotal evidence, uh, but it is persistent enough for me to be really disgusted by it. Uh, I know that left-wing harassment and intimidation happens, but I, you know these people are calling folks at home leaving hostile voice messages calling their work phones uh emailing their bosses trying to get them fired right this is what we are doing to each other on the left and it's really absurd and it has to stop um you know i hate to hate to be a, a, a debbie downer right now a bummer a bear of bad news but i've just been really disgusted by this over the last couple of weeks uh, and hearing from some of the women guests that I've, I've tried to get on here. Some of these women, you know, women are, are particularly threatened by this dynamic, which is really ironic, right? Because we pride ourselves on the left as being an inclusive space, right? Uh, but in the name of feminism, in the name of anti-racism, we are silencing our women and, and uh, racialized commentators, I mean, this is just crazy stuff. It's it's really absurd, and it needs to stop. Um, but I just thought I would raise it, uh, bring it to everybody's attention. It's the best that I can do right now. Hopefully, we'll continue this conversation and address this in coming episodes. So pick up your chins. Let's move on from that distressing topic. Got a really great interview coming up for you. Stay tuned. For me, I do declare, Mr. Beauregard, 
And welcome back to the Dead Pundit Society. Joining me this week, very excited to have Matt Karp. Matt is an assistant professor in history at Princeton University. He's a contributing editor to Jacobin Magazine, and he is the recent author of This Vast Southern Empire, Slaveholders at the Helm of American Foreign Policy. Matt, how are you? I'm great. Happy to be here. Thanks for joining us today. So we're going to cover a lot of things on this show. We're going to talk a little bit about the Civil War. We're going to, we're going to get into a we'll tickle the fancy of the history buffs out there, hopefully. But your, the thesis of your book is a very fascinating one. You argue that the slaveholders were at the helm of American foreign policy in the, sorry, the 1830s and 40s and 50s leading up to the Civil War in a way that we have conveniently forgotten. So pick up the thread there and, and tell us uh, why you wrote the book. It's interesting. American slaveholders, you know, it's not a group that has sort of escaped the attention of historians on some level, right? This is a very, this is not like Macedonian blacksmiths in the, you know, early medieval period or something (laughs) like that. This, these are like, this is a very well known, you know, both in terms of the popular imagination uh, of, of, of the slaveholding class, you know, from, you know, gone with the wind onward, and also in, uh, to, to Django Unchained, maybe to pick two poles. Yeah. And also in, in the scholarship, of course, there's, you know, you know, enormous, probably, I think some historians have described the debates about interpretations uh, about slavery as a social and economic, uh, and to an extent as a political system, uh, as the crown jewel in American historiography. You know, I think that's right uh, in terms of it's the most interesting historical debates uh, and kind of ebbs and flows and pendulum swings from Charles Beard to, uh, you know, Eugene Genovese, uh, you know, Ken Stamp, Eugene Genovese, Fogel and Angerman. And then most recently, you know, a whole raft of books that are really making, you know, aggressive arguments about slavery as you know, fundamental to American and, and if not, you know, global capitalism in the 19th century. So, so does that does that, in a sense, make it the holy grail as well? Uh, you, you mentioned the crown jewel, right? This is the crown jewel, but it's also the holy grail, which means there's something, there's an elusive quality about it yeah, at, okay. at each subsequent epoch, right, in American history, right? right? right. We have to reinterpret this story, this narrative. So, with that being the case, let's rewind back to the early 20th century. And let's talk about the kind of narrative that is set up in that particular point in time that has been subsequently revised in a better direction over the years. One vision of slave society of the of the antebellum South, usually it's not described in, in the terms of slave society. It's just the Moonlight and Magnolia's view of the antebellum South where, you know, uh, you know, the kind of garden parties and gone with the wind where um, a kind of genteel uh, master class was somehow sort of insulated from the chaos and the hubbub of the sort of urbanizing, industrializing northern world and was a kind of almost an oasis from modernity. Uh, in, there are a lot of in, civilized in, parties and sipping on mint juleps, <laughs> I do declare. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Very so, genteel, yeah, right? Yeah, that, that's, that's, the, that's the, mytho- the mythos of that's this the mytho- era, That's right? the mythos. And I think, and 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 you know, uh, the political version of that narrative uh, also emphasizes, um, the, you know, the the sort of defensive character of what the Southerners were up to—that they really just wanted to be left alone, right, right—and right. to sort of maintain, you know, just to you know, to sort of sip their juleps in peace, and um, and to maintain their system, their you know, their social order, certainly, but essentially to sort of preserve that against any kind of outside incursion. And then, you know, they ultimately secede because they, you know, they feel under siege by, you know, by the North and by the rising anti-slavery movement, but also in some sense by the sort of the, the momentum of the modern world, that they're mm-hmm. kind of retreating into a shell. And I would just note that, 
alongside that kind of romanticized version, there's a counter narrative that actually mirrors that and kind of reproduces some of the same assumptions of slaveholders as, you know, what you could call the Uncle Tom's Cabin narrative of slaveholders as, you know, Maxim or, or even Django Unchained right, is kind right. of maximally personally cruel and vicious, sadistic, uh, barbaric. I mean, this was the abolitionist propaganda of the time. Um, but, but also, in some sense, even though uh, it, it reverses the moral energy of, of the moral inflection, it's the same kind of uh, argument that uh, they're still cut off from modernity. They still have nothing to do with um, the kind of uh, the sort of the, the spirit of progress in the 19th uh, century yes. world. And so it still sort of makes them anachronistic in some sense. And yeah, so my book, I think both of those interpretations draw basically they're a product of looking at the civil uh, uh, at the antebellum South from the perspective of Appomattox, from the perspective of Southern defeat in the Civil War and the hundred years that followed, in which the South was largely uh, uh, defensive, concerned with its own social order uh, for good or for ill. Obviously, you know we say for ill, but concerned with preserving the racial order, the the the, the class order. Uh, and not really concerned with national power. But it's a mistake to look at the antebellum class, I think, from the perspective of the postbellum world. So I, I really look at, I think in some ways my book looks at the South from the perspective of, you know, maybe Montgomery, Alabama, 1861, when slaveholders came together to form the Confederate government, mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, which they envisioned as a powerful national instrument for enhancing the kind of global ambitions of uh, a very confident slave class. And uh, I think from that perspective, you know, looking back into antebellum history, uh, you see that, uh, you know, uh, this is this is a, this is a class that's very different from the postbellum Southerners. They were nationally powerful, they were internationally confident, and they believed that the United States was the vessel that could contain and advance the interests of the slave power all around the world. They weren't automatically uh, pushing towards secession. They were, you know, very invested in American power as the instrument of, uh, of, of, of to advance, you know, the interests of slavery. Right. And so it sounds like what you're talking around here is, is, is actually a very provocative way of looking at history and that we have to we have to imagine that the 1830s and 40s. Right. We have to imagine that period in a way in which those folks did had no no idea that there would be a civil war, you know, 20, yeah. or 20 or 30 years down the road. Right. It's too easy to impute this like foreknowledge, right? This like absolutely omniscient, you know, kind of knowledge about what this would like. Don't you know this is going to lead to civil war? Like, no, they didn't know. They had other fears. And you talk about some of those fears in terms of the British abolition of uh, slavery in 1833 and the kind of right. uh, the kind of uh, vibrations that that caused uh, yeah. throughout the hemisphere. Maybe maybe talk a little bit about that for us. Yeah, for the first half of the book really is concerned with the period up until, you know, basically from, you know, Great Britain abolishes its slaves in the Western Hemisphere in 1833. It's a major transformation in the kind of ideological and strategic balance of power in the Western Hemisphere. You have the world's largest power, right? The kind of, you know, global, you know, globe, uh, globe girdling blossom of the British Empire yeah, that yeah. is now... Uh, lined up against slavery. And, you know, when slave ships crash land and, uh, you know, shipwreck in the Bahamas, you know, the British authorities now free the slaves. And the Americans are like, whoa, this is a whole different ballgame than, you know, having isolated outposts of anti-slavery, like, say, Haiti 
or um, maroon colonies in the south. This is a very different kind of, um, uh, you know, or maroon colonies elsewhere in the Caribbean. This is a very different kind of threat when you have a superpower that is anti-slavery now. And the first half of the book is really about how over the course of the 30s and especially in the 40s, slaveholders were much more concerned with this threat than with um, domestic anti-slavery and, you know, organized U.S. foreign policy to sort of create a, a comprehensive kind of strategic program to defend American slavery and, and advance American slavery against British anti-slavery. And that that really fr- should frame how we see the, you know, extremely eventful foreign policy of the 1840s, probably the most, I mean, I think you could argue it's the most eventful decade in U.S. foreign policy history, you know, uh, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe the 1940s. Uh, but I mean, the 1840s, uh, you know, saw the annexation of Texas, the con, you know, the, the mm-hmm. war with Mexico, the conquest of Western North America, the kind of establishment of U.S. hegemony over really the Western hemisphere, uh, incredibly uh, momentous events. And I think we need to see them in light of this ideological strategic struggle between American slavery and British anti-slavery. Uh, that's a, a really important window on, on why these things happen as they did. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about the players here. I think um, you talk about some of the, the classic bad guys of the Confederacy, or heroes, you know, depending on who you are, right? But one of the, <laughs> one of the, the, the more known name that comes up throughout this book at the later phases, because he was young in the 1830s, is Jefferson Davis, who was the president of the, uh, the Confederacy, is what he's known for. Um, right. The ultimate traitor to the Union, right? But this guy was a, a statesman, a United States statesman. Uh, it's playing right. several, playing several roles and in, 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 in very consequential roles throughout that time. And there are others before him, like Abel Upshur, that you know folks may not be as familiar with. But maybe talk about some of these guys and how they position themselves in the U.S. state in contradiction to their kind of like uh, states' rights uh, ideology that they espoused. Yeah, I mean, you know, so, uh, you know, Southern rights or states' rights or sectionalist uh, slaveholding leaders from, say, President John Tyler in the early 1840s, under whose administration uh, the the annexation of Texas, like, becomes a reality, which leads to all of, you know, the rest of the stuff in the 1840s. You know, Secretary of State Abel Upshur of Virginia, and then Rapuz, you know, dies, you know, kind of spectacularly, uh, you know, when a... When a, a, a Guns on a ship explode in his face. Um, I want you to exp- I want you to retell that story. Folks okay, may we can have, do that. Folks may have heard it from your uh, from your talk uh, on Jacobin <laughs> in New York City, but I want I want a, I want a retelling of that because it's fucking hilarious. Yeah. Well. Uh, okay. Let me just give. We'll, I'll we'll give the players introduction. Let's yeah. come back to it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, or you know who's you know when Upshur dies, he's replaced by Secretary of State John C. Calhoun of South Carolina, who's maybe the most famous antebellum sectionalist. All, all the way through to Jeff Davis in the 1850s and, and, and a bunch of other second-tier figures. These guys are very conscious uh, of themselves as Southerners, as uh, defenders of slavery. At times, they make a bunch of arguments about local you know, sovereignty, state rights, etc., in order to sort of preserve, um, you know, to the extent that they fear an encroach, federal government encroachments on slavery or uh, prohibitions on the expansion of slavery in the West, etc. But uh, at the same time, from a foreign policy perspective, they are absolutely not encumbered by you know, strict construction of the Constitution or states' rights ideology from pursuing a very aggressive nationalistic defense of slavery, which involves, you know, under in, in the Tyler administration, annexing, uh, using sort of 
going well beyond um, both the customary and constitutional uh, limits on sending uh, agents and, um, and and making promises of security guarantees to the Texan government before uh, negotiations, uh, before any annexation treaty has been passed, circumventing Congress. Same thing during the Polk administration and the run-up to the war with Mexico. Engaging in pro-slavery diplomacy with Cuba and Brazil, other slave slave societies in the hemisphere, building up the army and the navy to defend uh, the United, enhance the power of the United States, defend slavery. They're extreme nationalists from this international perspective because they really believe that, especially southern control of the executive branch, um, means that you know uh, they're confident that you know they will you know when why shouldn't they be you know slaveholders had been in the driver's seat in some sense of the american republic from the very beginning uh, and i don't want to actually i don't want to i don't think it's a mistake to go too directly like thomas jefferson and john c calhoun same person not at all they actually i think there are really important distinctions in the, the way that uh the founding generation of slaveholders saw slavery and the way these guys do they're much more explicitly positive good pro-slavery right. and i think that makes a difference but the legacy of Southern power in the Union is continuous. And there's, uh, I think there's reason to believe that they believe it will continue, even as the North is growing rapidly. They still believe that slavery's interests are best served through the executive branch of the United States government. Or else, why would they be, you know, most of these guys, Calhoun and Davis, they spend most of their lives in the employ of not of their states, but of the federal government. They're federal employees, you know, and they believe in an active powerful federal government abroad. Right, so it kind of gives lie, or at least throws into contradiction uh, this, this claim that the Civil War was about states' rights. Um, oh, yeah. It certainly was to an extent, but these are really kind of like, to get nerdy for a minute, these are like counter-hegemonic projects on a national scale, right? So it, it's not, it's it, the states' rights uh, narrative is really kind of revisionist. What was actually going on is, is it was a contestation about the nature of the American state that, that took yes. place on the national scale, right? It wasn't this sort of poor little genteel, uh, you know, mint julep sipping, I do declare, you know, southern uh, enclave <laughs> surrounded by this, surrounded by this industrial, uh, you know, uh, juggernaut of the north, right? That's a really revised way of understanding the political and economic field of that area era, I think, um, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I think that's actually really well put. Uh, the the uh, struggle for control of the state to colliding visions of American power, of, in a, in a sense, of American empire, um, that were equally or uh, at least comparably ambitious and, um, and uh, comparably convinced that the United, you know, convinced in different ways with, with in increasingly divergent visions of, you know, the nature of, say, American settlement of the West, whether it would be, you know, slave settlement or free labor settlement, but, but, but equally convinced that the United States had a grand role to play in world affairs and that, um, you know, the power of the, the federal government was essential to playing that, to sort of executing that role uh, completely. And Southerners are, you know, they're in charge of the executive branch, even through the 1850s. And the you know the presidencies of Pierce and Buchanan, who are Northerners, but the mm -hmm. they're Democrats, and at this point the Democratic Party has become a complete vassal of the slaveholding states. And you know Jefferson Davis, the Secretary of War under Pierce, he you know is the most influential. I think you know it's not me who's saying this. A lot of historians have noted that in some ways he's probably the most influential member of cabinet. Um, really sets the terms of Pierce's policy in a lot of ways. And you know they're they're playing this game. 
at the at the at the federal level. I mean, just just an obvious example that just needs to be put on the table, even though it's not specific to my book, but against the states' rights argument. It's like what's what what is the states' rights argument for a fugitive slave law? You know, I mean, that's a right. federal law that overrides northern you know, personal liberty laws that are set up to give due process to people accused of being slaves who've either have escaped uh, slavery or wrongfully accused of having escaped slavery. And if the, the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 insists on federal marshals uh, having the authority to reclaim these supposed fugitives, uh, overriding all of these laws. I mean, same thing, the Dred Scott decision is a nationalistic decision. The demand for a federal slave code in the territory is a nationalistic demand. And then in foreign policy, it runs even deeper. Uh, as as my book argues, right. So the stakes the stakes of that foreign policy branch of the of the Southern slaveocracy, it seems to me, was defending uh, the slaveholding uh, territories of Cuba and Brazil. So I don't want to get too much in the weeds on this, but I think it's an important point uh, that there was kind of a slaveholders international that. That was yeah. kind of being formed. I mean, if you look at it like, okay, the, so the the Soviet International, right, of the 1920s and 30s and 40s and on, like this was the Slaveholders International, and they they were very conscious about this political project. And so maybe spell that out, how, how that happens um, in, in yeah. the 1830s through the 1850s. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I, do, I do toy occasionally, you know, you probably picked up on the sort of, uh, occasionally I'll toy with Cold War metaphors or... Or, um, or analogies to 20th century foreign policy or so on. I mean, I do think there was a, there's a fair comparison to be made between the struggle over the future of, of slavery in the Western Hemisphere and the Cold War in the sense that it's a strategic and ideological struggle that, that, that ranges across the hemisphere in which the United States conceives of itself certainly by the Tyler administration, as the hemisphere's chief defender of this system uh, against a countervailing, you know, hostile system of anti-slavery led by Great Britain, the other, you know, uh, this sort of world's major superpower. And yeah, and the United States has allies in or, uh, you know, con- confederates in, in slaveholding. Uh, Cuba and Brazil, the two largest. Texas actually deserves mention as a, before 1845 as a, the fourth largest slaveholding, independent slaveholding republic or society in the hemisphere. And all of those places are kind of, um, the United States is exerting in the Tyler administration its political, military, uh, especially diplomatic power to kind of make these other slave regimes know that it's on their side against the British uh, in, in really interesting ways. Yeah, I mean, the, the, just to, to spin off that and take that forward, the other thing about Cuba and Brazil that's so significant is how economically dynamic and productive they are as slave economies in the 1850s. Alongside, alongside America's King Cotton, you know, there's Cuba's King Sugar and there's Brazil's King Coffee. These slave goods are increasingly fundamental to the kind of global economy in the 1850s, and they sort of appear to be supporting Southern arguments that it's really, it's, it's, I mean, I argue in the book, it's not King Cotton, it's emperor slavery, who, right. as the labor system that undergirds all of these productive export staple economies, they need to be based on racial, co- racial hierarchy and economic, uh, sorry, and labor coercion. Right. And um, the uh, emancipated societies have seemed to, uh, uh, it, the British colonies, no longer because the f- enslaved workers, you know, quite reasonably would prefer to grow their own crops and do a kind of peasant production or more diversified economic production rather than work for 
crappy wages on a on a sugar plantation right. and so and sugar production falls post revolutionary haiti also uh struggled same thing. economically same and thing. that was held up as a sort of uh, a test yeah. case for what happens see what happens when slavery ends you know you fall into economic desolation which which you know i mean come on if you, anybody who characterizes uh the the post haitian revolution as like worse than what they had before you know come on it's uh, and what's interesting is there is there's an element to the sort of by the 1850s um, when, you know, to go back to the Cold War analogy, when it looks like a lot of Southerners feel like after the war, with Mac, after the annexation of Texas, they, they sort of Cuba survives what, what appears to be a very serious slave conspiracy in 1844, where the U.S. offers to send ships to help out. It's not necessary, ultimately. The war with Mexico confirms, you know, U.S. strategic dominance over the western, you know, half of the continent, in a sense, over all the Caribbean basin. And they, there's really a belief, and then meanwhile, these slave economies are, are you know, increasingly, you know, productive uh, and apparently dynamic. You know, they're, they're, you know, Cuba has railroads before Spain does. You know, these things are, they're, they're, they're susceptible to certain kinds of development that favor the slaveholding class, not like a kind of actually, you know, broad-based development. But, you know, in, in certain ways, they're very dynamic. And Britain appears to be retreating from its kind of ideological commitment to anti-slavery. So there's this triumphalism about slavery it, it really reminds me to, to be to do. I, I don't love. I don't. I don't love all these contemporary analogies. You know, we could talk about that, but uh, <laughs> it does remind me. There's a kind of, you know, Mark Fisher's term, capitalist realism. Yes. You know, this yes. idea that like there is no alternative. You know, right. that you just whatever you think of it, you have to just you know work within the parameters because this is the way the world works. There's a kind of pro-slavery realism in the 1850s where these guys are saying, look. The British have been whining about this for 50 years. Uh, you know, you in the North think you're going to get rid of our system. You guys are absolutely insane. You're sentimental. You're, um, you know, you're blubbering foolishly over something that is just written in steel. And this is how the world works. Get over it. Slavery is fundamental. Right. And, and uh, one of the folks you talk about in your book is Henry Wise, who was uh, a United States diplomat in Brazil at one time. And, and he was a slave, uh, pro, obviously a pro-slave um, uh, sort of apparatchik in the U.S. state yeah. to extend the Cold War metaphors again. Uh, yeah. And, and, and Wise made a very interesting uh, argument as pointing out the hypocrisy of the of the northern anti-slave elite and saying that, well, actually, a lot of these ships that are engaged in the illegal slave trade are owned by, like, Quakers from Pennsylvania or whatever. Like, one of these guys allegedly wouldn't even eat sugar that was produced by slaves on plantations. However, he allegedly owned a ship and profited from, you know, the, the illegal slave trade. And so there was really kind of, yeah, I mean, I think the capitalist realism really works there. There was a slave, slave holding realism at work, wouldn't you say? Yeah. I mean, there's just a way in which, I mean, it, what it, what it does ultimately, what it, what it's, what he's really showing there is just the, the, the entrenchment and the, the reach, the broad reach of, of slavery in the Atlantic economy that no matter what you want to say about it on paper, uh, in your in your anti-slavery periodicals or whatever or whatever boycotts you kind of think you're doing, there's really no escaping this system because it's so fundamental to producing these critical staple goods that are driving the modern economy. That are you know the cotton for you know most importantly of course for you know British textiles and the the kind of you know the lead leading sector of the of the industrial revolution probably, but then also really important other consumer goods that keep the industrial revolution humming forward that you know sugar for 
cheap sugar to go in the cheap coffee that the workers are drinking to keep them, you know, kind of engaged at work to some extent. You know, these are these are goods that seemingly have, are not capitalism hasn't figured out yet how to produce them really efficiently without slavery. And Southerners are saying, you know, that's because they can't be produced without slavery. They can't be produced without this kind of basic coercion that's that that really has to be racially organized. And you know, in the 1850s. Uh, you know, as, as it turned out, they were wrong. I think it's important to note that they were wrong, obviously. That capitalism was able to figure out a lot of other different ways to coerce and extract labor. But right, right, right. Um, but at the time, in the 1850s, you know, there's there's a weird plausibility. If you're if you're concerned, you know, strict, if you're just like a kind of a, a reader of The Economist, say, uh, and maybe you're morally against slavery, as most, like, British readers would have been. But from an economic perspective, you're very leery about upsetting the system that seems necessary, because how else could you get these goods? Right. So the, the, the moralism of the, of the period, a sort of moralistic interpretation of the period fails on a couple of levels. And it seems to me that what they suffered back in those days, their slaveholders realism, what they suffered from is the, uh, it's the, uh, the sort of flip side of the coin of what we suffer from today and that maybe you might talk a little bit about uh you know you've you've mentioned the dynamism of the slave holding society right like but but the you're making an implicit argument there that i want to render explicit for folks who aren't kind of history nerds like us uh because the way that the way that particularly some of the marxian views the marxist uh inflected views of slavery read history in a way of like oh the the abolition of the slavery was inevitable Right, because slavery was an, an inefficient system of organizing labor, um, and it necessarily had to fail. Right? Yeah, I mean, and I don't even know if that's you know to a certain extent there are a lot of you know there's a lot of insight uh, in that view of uh, of slavery. I don't want to take this sort of counter position that that slavery was actually the most dynamic and uh, you know was was much more productive um, than, uh, than 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 a free labor economy you know right, the, right. The, the, the that would go way too far but I think what what the what in, in the case of the 1850s what a kind of more orthodox uh, or at least traditional Marxist interpretation of slavery misses is the strangeness of this moment in world history and in that you know it's this is really before, the kind of uh, you know, I guess you could call it the second industrial revolution or whatever that, where that 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 be you know heavy capital intensive industry and you know steel and oil and um, you know sort of like you know heavy uh, machine production right. kind of you know t- be- eventually does produce a juggernaut that ultimately I think would have towered over mm-hmm. the kind of agricultural economy of the South. But in the 1850s, it's not clear that like agriculture is inherently going to be subordinate to industry. And that, and that, and and so from that perspective, this is an economy in the South that had considerable political powers through its production of these key goods, and could feel very good about its the the chief um, sort of owners of capital and reapers of profit, the slaveholders, could feel pretty good about its ability to stack itself up next to a northern free labor economy. Certainly, they you know the 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 wealth that that the that the slave system produced for the slaveholders made them, you know, doing, you know, they were doing better than any other class in America economically and, and politically they had disproportionate power as well. So I think you really miss the, if you sort of, um, you know, write from the perspective of, yeah, the system was on its way out, you miss the, 
I don't know, you know, the way that the, the actors at the time really saw the world. And so you, you might miss, you know, their political reasoning and the decisions that they made from, you know, from, you know, Texas annexation all the way to, to secession and the Civil War itself, which I think, you know, is bad. You want, you know, even if, even if these guys were ultimately wrong about kind of the, the motor of world history, their belief still shapes the actual texture of that history considerably. Right. And this is a good, this is a fantastic, actually, warning to a lot of the new socialists and progressives who are coming around to capitalism as an object of study, right? Because when, when you first sort of crack marks, right, and you start learning about capitalism, it's really easy to, uh, to assume that history has progressed with a certain kind of necessity and that this led to that, which then had to lead to this, which now in the future has to lead to this, right? And so there's a way of like, replacing history with theory, right? And so I think your book is really a warning uh, against doing that, that like history matters, right? Like theory is incredibly important, right? For strategic and interpretive purposes, but we, we absolutely have to have a, a, a full accounting of history. Yeah, you can't. I mean, certainly bourgeois capitalism didn't, uh, if, if bourgeois capitalism killed, you know, slavery, it, it, it didn't do it through some kind of vague process of history. It did it through, you know, General Sherman's army marching through Georgia. You know, I mean, that was it was a very uh, there, there, there was a very, very specific, very violent process which brought about the end of the slave system. And it wasn't through some sort of stage theory of history, but through some some very naughty politics and, and military struggle. So we're talking about the downfall of this slaveocracy. Maybe take us through the final steps, um, you know, both the ones you cover in your book and afterwards. And maybe, you know, we'll, we'll spend another, another several minutes on this, and then we'll get on to other things. But I want to give your book a full treatment here. So, oh, yeah. so take us uh, from the 1850s. How is it that this uh, incredibly powerful force inside the U.S. state that you, you raise? I mean, how many years of the presidency was controlled by Democrats, uh, you know, out of, the, out of 30 or something like, you know? It was like, right. I mean, I think they had, well, up until seven, up, slaveholders were themselves in power for, I think, uh, uh, 50 of the first 62 years up to 1850. I mean, that's astonishing. Then, that's absolutely yeah. astonishing. And then, and then, yeah. And then in the final 10 before uh, Lincoln's elected, it's all Northerners. But, but at least the, the final eight, uh, you know, leaving aside Millard Fillmore, uh, although he's, you know, pretty accommodating toward the South. But certainly Pierce and uh, Buchanan are arguably more pro-Southern than, uh, you know, a slaveholding president like James Monroe was. Right. So, uh, so it's, so it's, easy, think, to, it's yeah. easy to portray Lincoln as like the cherry on top of this long arc of anti-slavery in the United right. States. And that's just clearly not the case, right? No, Lincoln's a, a revolutionary. He's an aberration, yeah. an extreme yeah. aberration from the norm, yeah. as well as our uh, his, his compatriots, you know, in, in Congress or whatever. Yeah, I mean, and I think that, I mean, the book, I mean, this this points towards the book that I, I want to write uh, now, and I'm just, just really beginning, uh, on the the unlikely, the contingent, the radical rise of this Republican Party uh, that was able to forge a majority coalition in the North around anti-slavery politics against the main contours of all American history to date. And sure, they had some advantages because the South, the Southern leadership was so grandiose and militant itself. But that 
that they didn't do all the work for them. Uh, you know, this this still required a considerable uh, and, a, and a really, I think, revolutionary shift within American politics itself, which is fascinating, I think, is worthy of retelling. Uh, how the Republicans managed to do this in the North, you know, just 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 politically, but yeah, Lincoln's election is a is a is a fucking shock to the system for these guys. It overthrows everything that they've been fighting for. It cr- rises up, you know, it creates a Frankenstein that they've helped build the the power of this outward-looking state, especially in the executive branch. So much of their power has been concentrated in the executive branch in the last 20 years. And that Frankenstein monster that they've built has now turned against them, potentially, in the hands of an anti-slavery president with an anti-slavery cabinet, with people like Salmon P. Chase, who's a wild-eyed Liberty Party, you know, abolitionist, basically, from their perspective, in the Treasury Department and you know, William Seward of the irrepressible conflict fame, you know, equally radical from their from the Southern perspective is now Secretary of State. You know, all these guys famously portrayed is, in the movie Lincoln for those of the for those who saw that. Yeah, movie. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And yeah, these guys are all, you know, fanatics from the perspective of Southerners. And they're in command of the levers of national power that the South has painstakingly put together. So I think on one level, you know, the from that perspective, it makes the session much more – I think it underlines why Lincoln's election was so traumatizing for the South. Because, I mean, from one perspective, you might say, well, you know, Lincoln, you know, he was – he promised not to attack slavery where it existed. And, you know, why didn't they just wait him out? Um, you know, obviously seceding produced a much more rapid end of slavery than if they'd sort of stuck it out. But I think that neglects the fact that, you know, most slaveholders really, really weren't game for waiting him out. That neglects how invested they were in the control of the executive branch. And uh, it also neglects how confident they were about their uh, ability to thrive on the international stage, how they believed slavery's economic power would override the political distaste that, you know, Britain and other, you know, European nations felt about slavery. And that, you know, a slaveholding republic you know, given its economic dynamism and its economic necessity even deeper, would be able to, you know, thrive on the world stage. Right. So we go from a, a, a section in your book where you mention it's actually or it, it, it gets its title from this is that uh, John C. Calhoun, I believe, uh, writes famously that peace is indeed our policy. So in the 1930s, sorry, the 1830s and 40s, right. they sought peace with uh, Britain because they recognized that the, the first uh, – the first, you know, uh, defeat, the first victim of the war would be the slaveocracy, would be the slaveholders. Yeah. Uh, they yep. would invade the South by sea. I mean, Britain had the largest naval fleet many times over in the world at this yep. time, and they would invade the South that was poorly defended, and they would go, you know, plantation by plantation and free the slaves, much like Sherman did, actually, you know, some years <laughs> later, right? And so they recognized that, you know, peace with Britain was in the in the in the interest of the slaveholders. And and then fast forward, you know, two decades later, and suddenly, you know, these people are frothing at the mouths to go to war in some senses. So how do we get from a sort of negotiated, settled peace in the 1830s, where folks universally recognize this was in the interest of the slaveocracy, to the Civil War? Maybe we'll spend about five minutes on sort of coming to the, conclu- <laughs> the conclusion there. Yeah, that's a, that's a big question, though. And it's actually, huge, to, be, yeah. to, be, to, be, to be totally honest, I think the book doesn't treat this with the... Um, I mean, I think I, I'll take a shot at it. I take a shot at it in the book, too. Um, but I think this is something that, you know, to be honest, the Confederate decision for war, specifically in April of 61, which 
we're always writing about Lincoln and the first shot at Sumter, and we're not writing nearly enough about the the people who actually fired the first shot, i.e. former Senator James Chestnut of South Carolina, Princeton graduate, who gave the first order to, you know, to uh, unleash the artillery on Sumter, who is following orders himself from Jeff Davis's cabinet in Montgomery. And they're the ones who did it. Uh, Wait a minute. The so they didn't who... call each other on their iPhones or use, satel- <laughs> yeah. or use satellite uh, technology to communicate <laughs> with each other? I, think, I mean, I think that's a crucial point, right? We assume that there's like this top-down kind of communication structure, whereas in reality, in those days, military operations were a much more kind of like fly by the seat of your pants, you know, like just act first and hope that what you did, you know, was, was the best thing and that your, you know, your leaders don't kick your ass for it later. Right. Although no, for sure, for sure. And then the civil war is full of instances like that. Um, although I, I think it's Sumter though. It really was the Davis cabinet because they had determined mm-hmm. that if, uh, Lincoln tried to, you know, uh, resupply the, the fort at Sumter, you know, where the union troops were kind of barricaded in holding, holding on, you know, they would have been starved out in a few more days. But uh, if Lincoln tried to resupply the Fort at Sumter, then their orders were to fire. Mm-hmm. In other words, yeah, to go back to your original question, uh, they violated a central tenant of their kind of strategic worldview for the past 30 years, which is don't get into, if you're a slaveholding society, don't get into a bigger and don't get into a war with a bigger and badder power than yourself. It's one thing to go fight Mexico in Mexico it's one thing. It's another thing to you know fight Indians. Uh, it's another thing, possibly, to be even involved in a war, you know, relating to Cuba. But but you do not want to awake uh, the giant of an, especially an anti-slavery power, because the you know the United States had fought Great Britain in 1815, and many slaves did seek freedom in British lines. But Britain was a slaveholding society at that time, so you know Britain had slave slave colonies in the mm-hmm. Caribbean. So Britain wasn't doing the Sherman thing. Uh, Britain didn't unleash an emancipation proclamation or anything like that during the War of 1812, and that made a difference. But if you fight Britain after 1833, you are fighting an anti-slavery power, and an anti-slavery power has the capacity, A, to land black troops, for instance, from Jamaica. That was the big big specter haunting the southern southern regimes, right? Yeah, absolutely. Andrew Jackson spent many nights, you know, sweating in bed thinking about this. Sipping his bourbon. Yeah. And, um, and so... It is a really it's – a, it's a profound question how they – why they – I mean I, I am not totally satisfied even with my own interpretation about why that principle fell apart in the furnace of, uh, of 1861. I mean I think what I try to argue is that um, there's this – the same factors that have kind of given the South this new rippling, you know, swaggering international confidence in the 50s about slavery's – um, you know, slavery is the end of history. You know, you have somebody like James D.B. DeBoe is probably like is the editor of the South's leading, you know, pro-slavery periodicals, like the Francis Fukuyama of like, uh, you know, of <laughs> slavery. Right. You could say he's sort of like this is how, you know, slavery, you know, this is where, you know, world history points toward this. Yeah. Or maybe it'd be, he is more like George Fitzhugh is probably the, the Francis Fukuyama of, of slavery. Anyway, that they're so confident in their system and its capacities that they are actually willing to, in order to sustain this like fragile Confederate Republic, in order to sort of confer- confirm their place on the world stage, um, that you know they're willing to to you know start a t- totally disastrous war with the North because they, they 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 their confidence has become so sky high. That's that's my view 
on it, uh, and they they become sort of strategically dis, you know, deranged in a sense because you know there are many 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 paths out of 1861 that don't lead to the kind of destructive revolutionary war against slavery that happened. And uh, this was at one moment where a different path could have been taken, potentially. Right. This is a good lesson, I think, for our present, right? I mean, if you, it, it shows, like, from the 1830s, they were stockpiling weapons and, like, you know, like, rabid, like, you know, and uh, I don't want to say pro-war because they were pro-peace in a sense, but they were, they were still kind of beating their chest for three decades, right? Stockpiling weapons and beating their chests for three decades. It's almost like, you know, there was a certain kind of logic to to conflict right. that started to almost kind of spiral out of their control, even. Like, you know, there's, to a certain extent, you, you produce a warlike society, you, you know, it's almost going to produce a war in itself, right? With, with that kind of like that orientation. Yeah. I mean, you know, historians debate the kind of the martial culture of the South, you know, you know they were riding and shooting and hunting and jousting and. <laughs> And, uh, you know, and signing up for military academies and so on. And there's something to that, probably. Most of them were sickly and, uh, and, and you know, uh, the rest of it. <laughs> Tubercular and, Tubercular you know, like Alexander Stevens, they weighed 70 pounds and so on. No, cirrhosis I mean, <laughs> of the liver from all the mint juleps. Yeah. yeah, exactly. No, but I mean, but I think, you know, but what's striking is on the part of the, the kind of elite of the political leadership, uh, men like Stevens or Jeff Davis, is the is the or Robert Hunter is an important character in the book who's kind of been forgotten, but he was a you know vir- the most powerful Virginia politician in the fifties yeah, yeah. and becomes an important Confederate Secretary of State and so on. These guys were all about military preparation, but not about you know military use, right? They wanted peace through strength. That was like their kind of idea, mm-hmm. and and yeah, in the moment of of April sixty one, for one thing, one thing that it makes makes a difference probably that probably should be mentioned. I don't think I really hit this in the book too hard, but you have to remember, this is a very delicate moment. This, the Confederacy isn't the Confederacy yet in April 61 at Sumter. Virginia, North Carolina, Tennessee, Arkansas are still in the Union. So, and he, as cocky as you know, some of the guys like Stevens try to sound about the Deep South's ability to punch its weight on the international stage, just the cotton states, mm-hmm. you know, it's really a rump of a rump of a rump without Virginia and without the Upper South. In terms of the population, it's like, those upper South states have, you know, more certainly, you know, white population is larger than the deep South. Right. Um, and they really needed those states. So in some sense, and, and by starting the war at Sumter, in some sense, they get they get the, the full South. They get the guys like Hunter. And um, so on one level, you have a, a leadership that is slanted more towards the extreme militancy of the deep South, uh, which you know, means they're less restrained. And on another hand, you have the sort of need to sort of start a conflict that will break off the rest of, to create the, the, uh, a true slaveholding empire, uh, you know, that includes Virginia and, and North Carolina, Tennessee, Arkansas. So, th- you know, that, that, that's another dynamic that's, that's in the mix in April 61. It's, 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 it's a fascinating moment because so many different things could have happened. So it wasn't a foregone conclusion that the border states uh, yeah, would, would come not along all. would come along with the deep south in, in that respect. Yeah, Virginia Virginia had rejected secession. You know, they were in convention trying to secede for months mm-hmm. and they were maybe moving towards it, but they, they you know as of February and March they were still very hesitant uh waiting to see what would happen. Uh you know, it, probably any attempt by the north to, you know, coerce the south back into the union would have triggered Virginia secession, but it's is there's it's still like almost incalculable how many different possibilities 
you know, ways in which that coercion could have played out. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a reason why, you know, historians do whole lectures on like, you know, the counterfactuals at Sumter and stuff. And you can really nerd out on that stuff. That's why it's the Holy Grail, right? I mean, it, yeah, it, 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 there, there's so many what ifs. I mean, it, yeah. it gets off people like, you know, weirdos like us get off on it, which, you know, might be strange to some of our listeners. <laughs> so to take yeah. it in a slightly different direction, let's let's yeah. talk about um, let's talk about, you know, the your interpretation here in your book in, in terms of how it relates to the present. So one thing that I, I promised to get to would be the way that the Civil War, that folks draw a straight line from the Civil War to the present, right? And, and in a way of trying to like, trying to create a history, right? And you see this a lot in like uh, critical prison studies, people who study mass incarceration. They say, aha, well, you know don't you? And I'm sorry if I offend any listeners here, but you know, it's kind of a, well, you know that, uh, technically, you know, prison is a lot like slavery by other means, you know, or, or the welfare system or, or policing, right? uh, Any form of policing and things like that. They tend to draw a straight line from the civil war to the present. Maybe, maybe talk a little bit about the, some of the problems there, um, of, of that sort of trend that we're seeing on, on radical scenes today. I mean, you know, there are two, you know, great arguments between historians often come down to, uh, you know, an emphasis on continuity or an emphasis on change. Uh, And I think to some extent, of course, there are continuities. So you don't want to, you know, write out the idea of deep continuities between uh, between certainly in terms of racial ideology uh, and and about, you know, the way in which. Uh, you know, white supremacy has been a really consistent, uh, recurrent factor in American history from its inception. You you wouldn't want to sort of uh, pretend that you know that 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 hasn't existed or hasn't exerted uh, a powerful force in the 18th century, the 19th century, the 20th century, and so on. And that right. you know that white supremacists haven't used various tools in 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 the late you know in state you know the state apparatus to enhance you know their power and so on. At that same time, I, I really bristle at, you know, the, uh, at, you know, for instance, you know, books and, and articles and arguments that, 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 that want to do a one-to-one comparison. Because, you know, what the historian James Oakes has a good phrase for this. He calls it racial consensus history. This idea that there's always been a kind of consensus about uh, the centered on racism that really, you know, where contemporary carceral state is the same thing as as, as slavery. And what that really does, the reason why that offends me is it writes out the change and it writes out the struggle. To be honest, it writes out that, you know, m- millions of people, you know, struggled, died, and in, and in many important ways succeeded in changing this, you know, destroying the system of slavery mm-hmm. that um, set the stage for future struggles uh, against segregation and so on. And that you don't you, you don't have to give into some sort of like weird liberal Whiggish narrative of like, well, you know, this one thing set the stage for this other thing 100 years later. Like, right, you know, right. there's a way, you know, you're familiar with that kind of history, too, which Absolutely. is no good either. But 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 if you just write out this, the struggle altogether, then you're neglecting just analytically, you're neglecting, you know, massive transformations. And, you know, there's a huge difference between a convict labor system in Mississippi in 1930 or whatever and the uh, the system of a system of slavery that Im- that you know that incorporated half a million African Americans as property. It, it's it's fundamentally different in scale in 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 the social construction of society. It's just analytically very different, and and you know morally and politically, I find it 
problematic because it eviscerates the struggles of enslaved people during the Civil War, say, or uh, the struggles of the anti-slavery movement and the successes of, of the anti-slavery movement in rallying uh, constituency against slavery and ultimately building a political coalition to defeat slavery. Um, you know, leaving aside all the 20th century struggles that, that I'm sure everyone knows very well. So, you know, yeah, emphasis on continuity is great, but a flattening of, of struggle and of change and uh, a replacement of sort of a history of, of conflict with a history of consensus is, is, is no good, I don't right. think. And it's ironic because a lot of the people that I know who, who wield these are, you talk about, like, say, the new Jim Crow, right? Um, right. That's, a, the, you know, conceptualizing mass incarceration and, and white supremacy and racism in our current era. It's looked at as the, as the new Jim Crow, right? In terms of, like, right. it's like the Jim Crow South of the, you know— uh, early late 19th and early 20th century but uh it's different you know and, and a lot of people use that as a way to try to rehabilitate like the militancy of the people in those moments but it's kind of like it's kind of tragic because in, in attempting to to you know point to the struggle they they almost kind of flatten it in a sense so i mean i think a lot of the proponents of these things would say yeah yeah that's what we're doing we're trying to point to the struggles and the uh, you know that, that that kind of thing right but but it's almost like the narrative doesn't allow them to despite their better intentions maybe i don't think it's yeah i don't think it's for me it leads to those kinds of deep continuity arguments um they have a certain kind of um panache to them because it's sort of shocking in, you know, to sort of imagine that, you know, we're not done with, uh, you know, it's, it, 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 it's, it's successful in, in one sense because it, it kind of does something that I think we should all approve of, you know, outrages the bourgeoisie, right? It, it, it kind of, it does kind of, when you talk about the new Jim Crow, or you talk about uh, what was the new documentary, the 13th or the, uh, Doug Blackman's book uh, is, I think it's, you know, slavery by another name. It kind of, it's like, wait a minute, what? That still exists, and it sort of makes kind of well-intentioned, you know, white liberals or whatever have to sort of reckon in a sort of uncomfortable way with the legacies and like the horrors of American history. So in that sense, it's effective. Yeah, but I'm, I think I'm that, down with that 100. Yeah, percent anybody yeah. who wants to deny, you know, the legacy of slavery or white yeah. supremacy in history, yeah. like any anything to piss them off, right? I'm happy with that. But it also kind of put it also yeah. kind of so it's nice to score points, but it, it also paints us into a corner in a, in a, in a yeah, really important strategic so. sense. Yeah, because I think the other thing that it does is it actually, yeah, it, 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 I think it gives way or it can give way very easily to a kind of paralysis where it's sort of like what you're actually doing is constructing an argument for how things have not changed, how things cannot change, mm-hmm. how things will not change because this, this sort of uh, white resistance is so uniform, is almost transhistorical, is, is um, you know, will defeat any sort of political movement against it inevitably. Um, so the only forms of resistance are sort of like a kind of ultra radical form of protest that actually isn't really invested in changing the structure or has no has no conception of how to sort of change the the you know the levers of power. And I think that's that's I think it's just wrong in terms of the history. But I also think it's dangerous because it it leads to sort of paralysis and it, or it leads to a kind of depression and it it leads to maybe a sort of mobilization from people who really get off on being, you know, the kind of most radical person in the room or the most uh, militant. But at the same time, it's like a militancy without, uh, without, a, without, a, without a clear direction or even a belief that, that, that it can win. I mean, I talked about this in the Frederick Douglass article a little bit uh, that I wrote for The Nation, but it's very antithetical to the worldview of, of somebody like Douglass or the 19th century anti-slavery movement, I would say. 
Yeah, so let's move that to this perfect timing. I was thinking of moving there anyway. You recently had an article published in The Nation called The Enduring Struggle. Uh, the lead is for Frederick Douglass. The work of democratic politics was never ending. That came out on March 14th, uh, just a few weeks ago. And uh, yeah, so let's build on that argument a little bit. I think um, one of the critical mistakes that a lot of uh, people who are fighting anti-racist struggles today make is that they gloss over this history by saying that we live in this era of this sort of long sweep of white supremacy. And while that's absolutely true on a highly abstract level, that white supremacy is an active force in American politics, right? That's undeniable. It deals with history at such a level of abstraction that it, it, if you don't understand history, you can't understand how it could have been otherwise. Yeah. Right? And if you don't understand how things could have been otherwise, I don't know how you would have any kind of strategic orientation going forward. And, and I think your, your Douglas piece sort of unpacks a different path. So maybe tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, you know, Douglas, obviously in the news lately with our, you know, esteemed president uh, <laughs> sort of just learning who he was. And, you know, Actually, maybe... did, did you call Frederick Douglass for your piece yeah. to interview him, <laughs> yeah, by yeah, the way? Exactly. Did, you get like, any, got some, did you get any quotes? I got some great, great quotes from Douglas. new quotes. I got to yeah, get some hot him, I got him on the. I got him on the record. You know, oh, he, he's very, he's I've been, been very reclusive. Him. I've been calling been him very, for years, man. He doesn't, he doesn't he's pick been reclusive for like the last 125 years. But... Uh, yeah, I got him on the record. So, you know, that's why it's a must read for all you listeners out yes. there. Wow. Um, yeah, I mean, I think what why Douglas's voice is so important today is that on one level, I mean, you know, he 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 spits our very particular moment in the sense that a kind of reactionary power uh, has, you know, is, is totally regnant in the United States right now, you know, the, the right wing Republican Party, uh, you know, despite its ongoing fractional struggles, which are, you know, sometimes fun to, to watch, mm-hmm. notwithstanding, it controls the levers of power at almost every uh, level of government, uh, including spectacularly the White House. Uh, but every other level is, you know, with the exception of a kind of uh, increasingly beleaguered, uh, kind of concentrated, you know, metropolitan centers that uh, that liberals are dominating. Uh, you know, even though, even though, you know, whatever, Trump lost the popular vote, et cetera. But notwithstanding, the power of the right in terms of actually controlling the government is yeah, greater they, than they ever. They found a way. I mean, the slaveholders that you write about did yeah, not have a exactly. majority in the country. They were outnumbered by their own slaves, <laughs> right. for fuck's sake. Right. But, right. And yet, they found a way to put their hands on the levers of power yeah. uh, in a similar way that the GOP has been able to do. And I think we shouldn't write that off, right? Like, I sort of, I bristle a little bit when I hear about, you know, these sort of hot takes that say, well, you know, Trump didn't win the popular vote and he has these really low approval ratings. It's like, yes, all that is true. I mean, is that, that's important. I don't want to totally write that off, but they have nonetheless found a way to put their hands on the levers of power. And that like, we need to contend with that a little bit, I think. Yeah. And so, and so, so anyway, so yeah, so reaction is so powerful uh, right now. And, and, and I, this is why I think Douglas is important because, you know, Douglas was spent most of his life, you know, obviously the first 20 years of his life, he spent literally in the grip the kind of the most brutal grip, brutalizing grip of that power, you know, very directly as an enslaved person. But then, you know, the most, uh, to me, the most interesting part of his life when he became the kind of, you know, the sort of celebrity abolitionist and, you know, newspaper editor in the 1840s and 1850s, he spent a fighting against a similarly, a government that was similarly dominated by the kind of most aggressive right-wing forces. And yet, you know, which in some ways, given his own personal history and given 
the weight of history up to the, that time, as we've been talking about, right? You know, nobody saw the Civil War coming. Given all of that, you might think that the temptation for him would would be so much greater than it is us to throw his hands up and say, this is impossible. Well, how could I possibly believe that the United States can, can witness a political transformation, a political struggle that can overturn the power of slavery, the power of racism, the power of all of these inegalitarian, you know, kind of worse than egalitarian, all of these, you know, violent and brutalizing features of American life. How could I possibly like take up arms against this? You know, it, it, it seems almost absurd if you think about Frederick Douglass in, the, in, say, 1857 after the Dred Scott decision. How could he have any hope in carrying on his struggle? And yet, you know, what's amazing is if you read Douglass, he's just totally unbowed, you know, at pretty much every turn. You know, he's not at times he'll, you know, that's not to say that he didn't, you know, have moments of despair and, uh, you know, various moments where he did actually even consider emigrating from the United States. But overall, for the for the for the bulk of this period of the 1840s and 50s, he was he was incredibly confident in the capacity through democratic politics to use the power of the many against the power of the few and destroy the slave power and ultimately uh, achieve uh, the a kind of egalitarian society premised on the the ideas in the Declaration of Independence. You know, I mean, Douglas ultimately came around when he left William Lloyd Garrison uh, behind. He came around to a kind of nationalistic, to some extent, a sort of nationalistic abolitionism that was premised on premised on you know the you know a kind of progressive reading of the Declaration of Independence and believe that this could be achieved through uh, through uh, democratic effort. And it, it's interesting because so many people in the wake of Trump's election, I just have find liberals and even some radicals uh, have kind of given in to a kind of a, a pessimism or a paralysis about the prospects for uh, any kind of democratic politics because, you know, the people are, you know, the, the people have, have, have voted, the people have chosen racism or something. Right. And then that means that this country is like not redeemable or not changeable or there, there's just a kind of despair that I think ran through, um, ran and you still see it in those like, ridiculous articles that like, I think you and, uh, Eric Levis talked about yeah, last week. Exit, right. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to exactly. be clear that, that this is where the opinion polls are useful, right? Because I, yes. I hear people shouting into their micro or into their telephones or wherever they're listening to this right now. You know, yeah, you're right. This is where opinion polls are, can be useful, right? And, and sort of right. showing that, Hey, you know, there are other possibilities out there as well. Yeah. And I think, and I, so I think that, that that's one argument I wanted to make that, 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 that Douglas, you know, not just that he didn't give up hope, I mean, that's a little bit banal, but that he retained a sp- sort of specific belief that through, um, through a combination of kind of oratory and organization and through engagement, ultimately, this is another reason why he broke with William Lloyd Garrison, engagement in electoral politics could actually be a major venue to advance his, what was, what was a frankly radical and utopian uh, vision of a world without slavery, of an of a American republic without slavery, he believed that this, that, that this could be achieved democratically. That meant not giving up on everyone who had voted for James Buchanan, for instance, in 1856, right? Uh, it yeah. meant actually mobilizing and organizing a, a movement that would appeal to the masses on the basis of opposition to this concentrated elite of the slave power and uh, demand democratic equal rights for all. And, you know, uh, you know, okay, he didn't get everything he wanted, 
you know, there's a major limitations to how things played out in the Civil War and Reconstruction, which is a whole different story. But yeah, let's get into success- that. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but his su- yeah, <laughs> that's too much. Too much. But his successes were remarkable. You know, from the perspective of if you go from 1857 with Buchanan president, the Dred Scott decision, and then three years later. You've got Lincoln, and I'm not saying we're three years away from getting our Lincoln. Right. You know, I don't, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not nearly that optimistic. But, 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 the idea that uh, that that there's a sort of hopelessness to uh, electoral or democratic struggle in the U.S. is is, is small d democratic struggle is, is crazy to me. Yeah, so let's talk about the structure of that hope because the way that that's uh, sort of presented in 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 sort of woke liberal. Uh, woke liberal <laughs> politics these days. It's 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 not really Douglas's vision that you that you lay out in the nation in your nation piece, is it? Right. It's a far more p- particularistic kind of interest groups uh, oriented uh, way of looking at political struggle, right? And so you seem to be pointing. That means you really have an implicit critique there. So maybe bring that out more explicit for us. Yeah, no. Well, actually, you know, I think I I hadn't thought about it in those terms, but I think in terms of sort of contemporary Democratic, you know, party, capital D uh, sort of rhetoric and, you know, official um, official statements or official ideology. I think you're right. It's much more sort of tailor made and targeted uh, rather than kind of broad and universalistic. Uh, You know, that that's one way that there's an important difference. I mean, I think ultimately I mean, for, 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 for Douglas, I mean, this was the theme that I think the smarter post-election takes. I think Ezekiel Kwaku wrote a really good piece for MTV, actually, about this. I mean, I think Douglas, Douglas was, Kwaku's argument was that in order to sort of defeat, to build a political coalition that can defeat the right, there needs to be somehow the left needs to harness the self-interest of the masses, right? It can't simply be appeals to a higher morality. Right. And on the one hand, that is... That is that in some ways is different from Douglas because Douglas was certainly a kind of 19th century moralist and coming out of an abolitionist tradition that put, you know, moral struggle at the heart of things. Nevertheless, he was also capable of articulating a critique of the slave power as, as an undemocratic and a um, oligarchic uh, force that was that was brutalizing not just the slaves, but the, the kind of the, the free white masses of the north and south. And um, and uh, in that sense, he, I think, certainly endorsed a politics of self-interest on the part of, of the many against this concentrated elite. Uh, now, that's, you know, it, 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 again, you know, we've been we were saying how we don't like these one to one comparisons. So I don't want to go too too far deeply into that. But I but I but I think that's that's it's just another reminder that that um, that even in this moment where, you know, uh, in, the, in the 1850s where, say, you know, white supremacists, like really grotesque iterations of white supremacist racism were way more ramp, rampant than today. Douglas still found a way to believe that the masses at the North, for instance, could be united with the slave in a struggle for a kind of abolition democracy. Uh, and uh, if he believed it, I don't, I, you know, and then actually helped achieve it, I don't see how, why we don't believe that also. Right on. If anybody's been paying attention to the show, you know that every episode sort of ends in this uh, territory, so it shouldn't come as a surprise. Here we are. Surprise! Uh, <laughs> universal social programs, collective uh, class-based narratives. <laughs> but in any case, uh, one of the hot, uh, the hot theorists of, of today around questions of race and class is Barbara Jean Fields. 
and along with her sister uh, Karen Fields, and they recently wrote a book, fairly recently anyway, called uh, Racecraft. And one of the most seminal arguments in that book comes from an article, actually, that Barbara wrote uh, some years ago now, where she says, you know, we talk today about racism as though slavery was a system to produce racism, whereas in reality, (laughs) slavery was a system to produce cotton, right? And so it, it ties the creation of racialized uh, differentiation of the labor force to uh, the productive, uh, you know, imperatives of the system. And so I think, you know, I think your Douglas piece uh, sort of brings us back to that, to, to, to understand, like, rather than being divided along, you know, these permanent and essentialized racial lines, our strategic orientation of today must be created along the lines of ridding ourselves of this legacy of racialized hyper-exploitation, uh, which means, you know, universal social programs. Surprise, right? Here we are again with the universal social programs. But, you know, these target the communities that have been uh, hyper-exploited the most, right? I mean, there is a, 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 a marked inequality in terms of black wealth and ownership in our society, and only by uh, overcoming those barriers uh, can we do those things. But we also have to join arm-in-arm with uh, the other types of people across the country, uh, poor and working-class folks who have been hyper-exploited and left behind, in a sense. And so I think uh, Frederick Douglass gives us a way to do that. And Barbara Jean Fields always reminds us that you know we can't allow this form of racecraft to creep into our political analysis and our strategic orientation, uh, which causes us to lose sight of the origins of racial inequality. So yeah, sorry for that long rant, but I just think it's so important. Uh, what do you make of that argument? Well, I do. I mean, I assign um, I, what is it? It's a, what, what ideology and race in American history? I forget the title of her. So good. She wrote yeah. a couple of those seminal articles in like the eighties. I do I do close out my Civil War class with uh, with one of them. Good um, shit. Good shit. Yeah. Glad to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. No. So uh, uh, you know, foundational in in my own thinking about this stuff. Um, yeah, that's such a great point about 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 slavery. And another reminder that um, the destruction of slavery, I would just say, I mean, look, some of this might just be about temperament. I just I think I have to zoom out a little bit and just try to be fair to uh, in the spirit of fairness towards uh, people whose political goals I might share, but end up butting heads about this a lot. Um, mm-hmm. Some of it might just be about temperament. I have a temperament that desires to would rather sort of think about the past as a template for struggle uh wherein uh victory is possible even leaning slightly closer i'll just admit this in the spirit of honesty towards a usable past narrative rather than somebody who looks at the past and sees you know um horror and ruin and agony pure evil to be negated in the present right yeah exactly exactly and, you know, maybe other people, you know, maybe sometimes for some people looking at the past as a house of horrors that we need to overcome in the present can actually mobilize. So, you know, if that if that if that floats your boat, then then I don't actually want to I'm all for using the past as, as Douglas was, you know, uh, interestingly, he was he, this is now I'm kind of getting in dangerous territory for a historian. Douglas was definitely about usable past and about manipulating uh, as was Lincoln, by the way, uh, manipulating versions of America's founding and American history in order to suit a political narrative that uh, achieved his goals. Oh, yeah. uh, and I, I'm, 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 to be honest, I don't do this in my classes, but I'm in favor of politicians doing this absolutely <laughs> today. So if for some people using a kind of dark narrative of American history that's you know uniformly 
painted in in in, in colors of of, of uh, you know you know of dark darkness and misery and, and destruction. If that if that you know maybe that for a lot of people that inspires them. I don't know. I I, I just don't think that can ever work as a broad based formula for drawing on the past to achieve change in the present. I mean, for me, we need to be reminded that uh, that yeah, as as as, as Barbara Field says. You know, uh, slavery was a labor system, and it no longer, and, and not a not a racial system, and it no longer exists through political struggle, through historical change. That system was destroyed, and so can the present system be. Absolutely, good point there. I think you know, I mean, what Frederick Douglass is trying to do is he's is almost trying to be really clever there and to be more American than the founding fathers, right? Trying to out founding fathers, the founding fathers. By saying, like, ah, you're saying this one thing, but you're not doing it. I want to actually do it, right? We're going to take it to the next level and actually fulfill the destiny of America or whatever. And I think, like, that's something that, well, I mean, Eugene Debs, right? One of the big figures of the early American socialist movement absolutely used that strategy, saying, trying to, you know, uh, come up with an American version of, of uh, you know, socialism in those respects and trying to fulfill the promise of of America in those sorts of ways. And a Philip Randolph does this uh, for the black trade union movement in, in the 1930s and beyond, you know? So it's a strategy that, that comes up uh, time and time again throughout history. So you're right to point to it. I think. I love that move. I, I just really do love that move. I think it's so powerful. I think it works. I think, uh, Lincoln did it a ton, uh, you know, basically arguing, you know, I don't know if it was disingenuous, but it certainly doesn't hold up historically, but Lincoln spent all of 1860 arguing that the founding fathers were anti-slavery. And, you know, that the Constitution is an anti-slavery document. And Douglas, Douglas did the same thing. And, you know, less, uh, you know, his, his anti-slavery constitutionalism was a little different. But essentially, he made the same arguments. And, you know, in the, his famous Fourth of, Fourth of July speech, he does say something like, you know, we have only use of the past. You know, the past is only interesting to us in order to make use of it in the present. And that's a totally heretical thing that, you know. For my tenure committee to hear, but uh, <laughs> at least so he's honest, I, though. I mean, I wouldn't recommend but, using that, you know. But sure, but as but. a but as a but as a political actor, you right. know, rather than as a historian, I think that's the absolute way to think about it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, right on. I don't know. There's a guy who's uh, sort of big on the. Po- I don't know. I heard he was like the most popular politician on the American scene right now. I don't know what's, <laughs> what's the guy's name. He's uh, <laughs> uh, uh, um, Ernie Ernie, Ernie, Ernie. Schmanders. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he's, he's he's using this narrative right in this in a, in a really powerful way right now. He's not the most popular politician in, in America right now for nothing. So, um, yeah. So I think that wraps yeah. up the interview quite nicely. Uh, it's a really fantastic book. I don't care if you're a history nerd or not. Go out and check it out. It's uh, this vast Southern Empire. One last question, Matt Carp. Uh, would Bernie have won? <laughs> Bernie would have won. And that's a fantastic way to close out the interview. Thanks again for joining us, man. Uh, you, ha- you have a lot to say, not only about history, but about modern, uh, you know, contemporary political goings-on. So I'll be sure to have you back on the show soon to, to talk more. Thanks for joining us. Awesome, Adam. It was, it was uh, really enjoyed talking with you, too. And that's our show. Thanks again to Matt Carp, who... Uh, dropped a whole lot of knowledge on us sorry if that was over anybody's head i know that hey the two of us are history buffs if you're not don't feel stupid but hey as andre 3000 once said go read a book you illiterate son of a bitch pick up his book uh you can find it on amazon or at your local bookstore 
check it out. It's well worth the read. One last thing, uh, check us out, as I said, on patreon.com. If you have the funds and you want to keep this show running, by all means, help cover my overhead. Doing podcasts is hella expensive. I need your help. So check us out on patreon.com backslash dead pundits. Dead pundits as in plural. Join the society. You can donate $3 a month, $5 a month, or $7 a month if you can help us out please do. I myself donate to a couple podcasts that I believe strongly in their message, and I hope you believe in ours. Become a member of the society. Help a brother out. Help keep this thing free for the masses. So until next week, we've got another good one coming at you. Uh, Tune in, same time, same place. You all have a good one. And on the way out, feel free to wiggle in your chairs to Otis McDonald. Peace. Otis, you crazy mother...